Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, this uh, Saturday after Ash Wednesday, uh, <laughs> it's always an interesting thing trying to figure out where do these days after Ash Wednesday fall in terms of the liturgical seasons? Because we are, well, we are into Lent in a certain sense of the word from a certain point of view, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say. And uh, yet, but this isn't the first Saturday of Lent, though. That'll be next Saturday, because the church starts counting from the first Sunday of Lent, which is tomorrow, the first Sunday. So we have to call today by kind of the awkward name, the, the Saturday after Ash Wednesday. So happy Saturday after Ash Wednesday. Maybe we should call it Ash Saturday. I don't know. For me, it's a beautiful day here in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Well, technically, Venita. Oregon, which is a small little farming community um, a little ways west of Eugene. I am uh, walking around here this morning. I came over here to visit with a priest friend, uh, Father Theodore, who's assigned out here at this parish. And uh, we had a nice visit this morning. And then he has gone off to a retreat at the Catholic high school. But I thought, you know, I'm out here, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, and the ground is damp and sparkling with recent rainfall. I love mornings like this, where everything is wet, and yet the sun is breaking through the clouds. In fact, as I'm walking right now under the sunshine, it feels, it feels very warm, not uncomfortable. Uh, the air is cold, but the sun is bright and beautiful and, and warm upon my face. So I thought, oh, I'm out here already, I'm in the country, I thought I'll just walk around a bit. The parish out here has quite a lot of property, and, uh, and it's mostly all undeveloped. And so there's places you can walk out into the woods, sort of. It's very interesting, because I think we're still within the city limits, but there's just all this land that's, that's forested, and uh, that's... Actually, if you say land is forested, doesn't that mean that they've come and cut all the trees down? <laughs> I don't know. It's one of the peculiarities of English. But any, at any rate, they have not done that here. The land is wide open and uh, it's just covered with trees. So anyway, just walking around a bit here. I am wondering if I might run into somebody here in a minute though, because I see some parishioners, or I presume they're parishioners, walking around behind me in the parking lot near the church. So they might come over this way to ask me what exactly I'm up to. <laughs> we will see. But uh, yeah, I pray your Lent is off to a good start. Uh, yeah, for me, it's been, uh, it's been a great first few days of Lent. Now, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, but I'm embarking on this program called Exodus, uh, Exodus with this group of guys from the parish who have been joining me for a regular Bible study. We're reading through St. Mark's Gospel just a little little bit at a time. <laughs> we're doing an hour a week on Tuesdays. We, we're, we haven't made it more than about 15 verses right now into Mark chapter 1, <laughs> but uh, it's great. We're really going deep. And uh, so as a group, we decided to do this Exodus program for Lent. Now, this program comes from a longer program called Exodus 90, which lasts for 90 days. And that would start if you did the long one, which I know a lot of people who are doing it, they've been doing this program for several years now. It's picked up a lot of steam 
in uh, Catholic circles. <laughs> but if you were to do the longer one, you would start like the week after Epiphany at the beginning of January, and it goes till Easter. But this shorter one just goes from Ash Wednesday until Easter. It's kind of an easier on-ramp. It's an easier sell. <laughs> I've, uh, I remember hearing about Exodus 90 when they first started doing it when I was at Mount Angel. That's when the program first came out. And uh, I was pretty, pretty scared of it. I mean, it's a, it's a big commitment. So the 40 days is a little bit of an easier, an easier way in. But um, it's a great program. Basically, it has, it has three dimensions. Prayer, uh, asceticism, and fraternity. And so, uh, well, in terms of asceticism, because that's kind of the, I don't know, that's the most eye-catching, the most, uh, um, and in some ways, frightening <laughs> part of the program. So in terms of asceticism, uh, as a group, you know, with the other Exodus men, you um, commit together to, let's see, what are you doing? What are we doing? Uh, no, so you're not, you're not going to have any sweets, uh, sweet things like desserts and stuff. Or you, you don't have any snacks. There's no eating between meals. You only eat at meal times. No sweet drinks. So you can have like water, black coffee, regular white milk, and black tea. Uh, but you know, with your coffee and tea, you don't add any sugar or anything. Um, which I'm just remembering, I had uh, tea with this priest here in Venita, and he made me tea with milk and honey. <laughs> Uh, didn't think about that till just now, but oh well. Uh, some of these things are just like you have to get into that. You have to kind of break through your unthinking habits. <laughs> like, just yeah, any, anyway, sort of um, question yourself more. So, part of the value of asceticism and practices like this is just forces you to evaluate your normal behavior and think about things more uh, intentionally. So, anyway feeling called to do that now <laughs> next time I sit down to have tea with somebody but so uh, that's so that's some of it so no so let's see you only eat at meals no sweet stuff um, Wednesdays and Fridays are days of fasting now Fridays for the whole church are days at least of abstinence so you abstain from meat and then on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday those are prescribed days of fasting where you only have one meal and you can have up to two small collations, small, you know, a little bite, basically, that together don't make a whole meal. That's basically the rule of thumb. Um, but for Exodus, they kind of ratchet it up. And so Wednesdays and Fridays of every week in Lent are days of fasting and abstinence. So you follow those stricter guidelines of um, one meal and up to two small collations. And uh, so we've been doing that, um, which is great. Just a good practice. Let's see, what are the other ascetical things? So you don't use your phone or your computer for anything non-essential. So you can use them for, uh, of course, you know, your essential activities, work and school, things like that. And um, yeah, any, it's kind of left up to your discretion, to your prudential judgment. And if something's ambiguous, you check it in with the group. Um, but so in terms of things that are obviously non-essential, you know, you kind of cut out social media use. Um, the only time that I'm going to be using like Instagram will be to promote this Melchizedek project, which we're doing. Um, so that's work. But so for your 
normal like social media stuff, the time wasting stuff, like reading the news for hours on end, <laughs> checking on your blogs, following your news feed, um, listening to podcasts probably is not essential unless maybe you're doing like Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a year or something where you're committed to listen to it every day. Um, so that kind of stuff is not essential. So you cut all that out. Um, and for me, that's kind of been actually the biggest, even more than the food stuff, that's been kind of the biggest ascetical challenge so far. And I think it's going to be the major fruit of Exodus for me. Um, yeah, and I'm just having to, like I said about the tea, <laughs> and having to ask the question and just examine behavior. Yeah, I'm finding there's just such a need. Anytime that I go to reach for my phone, especially, not so much the computer, but I reach for the phone, I just have to stop and ask myself, is this essential? And even beyond that, is it essential that I do this right now? It's so often if I find if I'm, I don't know, I'm cooking something and I'm like waiting for the water to boil or, you know, something like that, or like I'm brushing my teeth or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'll just have this urge, I'll have this temptation to pull out my phone and I don't know, like read, maybe just like check the news or, um, you know, or like I have an app called Feedly that gives me updates from lots of different blogs that I follow, it's good Catholic blogs, different priests and academics and scholars and things, which, you know, it's good information, but I definitely don't, don't need to be checking that while I'm brushing my teeth, you know. <laughs> but there's always this temptation, yeah, to multitask and to, uh, yeah, to divide my attention and sort of to fill up these little moments with some kind of distraction. Even if it's something good, it's still a distraction. So part of the invitation of this technological asceticism is, I think, an invitation just to do one thing, you know, not to multitask. I'm also finding with email, um, on, uh, on Ash Wednesday, I turned off all my email notifications. So I don't get little pings or little pop-ups with new emails. Um, and then what I've been doing is, you know, I plan my days the night before. So I try to plan two half hour periods, like morning and evening if I can. And I set those aside for what I'm tentatively calling just general work. And basically, most of what that amounts to is dealing with email. <laughs> uh, so going through my inbox, responding to what needs responding, you know, and um, just those sorts of things, following up on requests or, you know, um, reaching out to people, whatever. I'm trying to carry a little notebook. Um, and then if I have the thought during the day of, oh, I need to reach out to this person or I need to follow up with this person, rather than just doing it at that moment, um, I just jot a little note about it down. So then later on at 4 p.m. or something, when I have a general work period, I can triage those things. So, um, <laughs> this is definitely something that I'm I'm, I need to grow into, I think, over Lent, over the course of these 40 days. Um, it's going to become more natural, and I'm really going to see fruits from it. Because, yeah, I think um, the potential fruit from this is just a greater focus, a greater presence in the present moment, a greater presence to what I'm actually doing at this moment, not uh, being so easily distracted and pulled away by pressing concerns from outside, you know, and that's something that I, I really desire. So, uh, that's something good. Yeah. Um, what else? 
You only listen to music that lifts the soul to God. <laughs> That's one of the asceticisms. I don't listen to much music anyway. And pretty much what I do listen to is uh, sacred music or like classical music uh, or praise and worship music sometimes. So that's not much of a challenge. Um, yeah, are there any other disciplines? Nothing, I think there might be one or two that I'm forgetting, but nothing is immediately coming to mind. So anyway, so you, you got, kind of got that um, bundle of, of, of ascetical disciplines. Then in terms of fraternity, the, so we're a group of three and you just check in with your group every day. Um, so you just check in, basically, just share how your day's going. <laughs> and if there's something you're struggling with, uh, you know, if, or if there's like a discipline that you have been kind of fudging or something, you just check it in with the rest of the group. So in that way, you're kind of supporting each other and holding one another accountable. And then once a week, you have a fraternity meeting with the rest of the group. And uh, you kind of, each person takes a few minutes to check in. And then you, as a group, will discuss... Uh, part of the what they're calling daily bearings um, which are little meditations that you get from whatever team is behind Exodus that they send out to you every day so you do that weekly meeting and in terms of prayer um, every every man in the fraternity commits to doing a daily holy hour and you also commit to reading these daily meditations and you pray for one another which is great so really really a good program um yeah it's excellent and i'm looking forward to just continuing uh through this for the rest of lent i think this so far like just a few days in but i think this is already the most intentional i have probably ever been about living this season of lent with yeah clarity and focus and purpose and uh, a big part of that is just committing to do something with, you know, clear expectations. It's a, you know, cl a clear commitment with a group, with, with other people, you know. It's very easy if we just kind of make our own resolutions <laughs> just on our own to kind of let them fall by the wayside, right? Like New Year's resolutions. But if you're actually doing something, uh, if you have a, a mission, if you have a journey that you're taking as part of a fellowship, <laughs> you know, to use the term from uh, Lord of the Rings that we're all familiar with, well, then you're much more likely to see it through to the end. So this is just something that I am being blessed by, and I hope these other brothers are being blessed by so far as well. So whatever you're doing for Lent, I pray that it is a blessing to you. I pray that you will receive from the Lord uh, new fervor, new zeal, uh, renewal of clarity and purpose, the gift of perseverance to see it through to the end, and that you will receive all that he desires to give you in this, this most blessed season, a season of ex really extraordinary graces. When the whole church is on retreat together, you know, we're all at prayer, we're all fasting, we're all disciplining our bodies, and we're offering all this up to the Lord to receive more of him. We uh, make John the Baptist's great prayer our own. He must increase, we must decrease. So, Lord, that's what we're asking for. We want an increase of your spirit. Pour yourself out into our hearts, Lord. And may we make space to receive you. Now, enough about that. <laughs> Let's move on to the topic we all love to talk about the most, I presume, J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. 
If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So as I go to make a new recording on my phone, I get a little pop-up. It automatically names the new recording based on where I am, which is interesting. So the, the first part of this podcast uh, came up with the name St. Catherine of Siena Catholic Church, which makes sense. But the second part, which I just began, came up with the name Luther Lane, which is a little bit alarming. <laughs> so I think I will backtrack <laughs> back towards the safety of the church, away from the unknown terrors of Luther Lane. <laughs> a lot has happened in the last week in Middle Earth. You know, it's amazing how far we've gotten just in the last, what is it, seven or eight chapters. Um, of course, you know, you can't expect the hobbits just to sit still for very long. So when we left them, when we last spoke on Saturday, um, they had just escaped from the Barrow White. Tom Bombadil came and rescued Frodo and Pippin and Mary and Sam. And, uh, well, all that's happened since then, <laughs> let's see, they made it to Bree. Um, they met up with this mysterious man, Strider, who is actually Aragorn, son of Arathorn. They uh, survived an attack of the nine Black Riders, the Ringwraiths, who are hot on their heels. They escaped from Bree led by Aragorn into the wilderness. They went off the road, eventually came to Weathertop, this hill where they were accosted by the Black Riders in the dead of night. Frodo was stabbed with a cursed Morgul blade, a, a sword, you know, from Mordor, Mordor, <laughs> as they always say in Peter Jackson's movies. <laughs> and uh, then they had a, a, a frantic ride to Rivendell, the house, the last fair house, or the last homely house in the West, they say. And, um, of course, the home of Elrond, the, I don't know if he's the, they say the king, or, I'm not sure, but the, the leader of the elves, this, uh, this, this band of elves. And so they're riding to Rivendell, trying to stay ahead of the Black Riders, and uh, just barely make it across the fords of Aizen. The Black Riders are drowned in the river, because of this magical defense that comes down, uh, the river floods and waves come crashing down and sweep them away. And uh, of course the Black Riders are not destroyed, but their horses are drowned and they sort of lose their, their corporeal forms, you know, so they have to go back to Mordor, Mordor, <laughs> greatly weakened. And so the, uh, the hobbits get a bit of a respite and Aragorn as well and this elf Glorfindel, who met them on the road. And in Rivendell, they meet Gandalf and Bilbo. So they're all reunited there. And there they have a council. And in the midst of this council, we learn more about the history of the ring and all that's happened in Middle-earth leading up to this time. We get a, a lot of history. And there's representatives of all the free races who are there. And uh, Ultimately, it becomes clear that there's only one course of action available, which is somehow they must get the ring to Mordor, back to Mount Doom, where it was forged, because only the fires of that, of that mountain in the heart of the volcano are hot enough to destroy this ring. 
they, uh, and the ring must be destroyed. If, even if they were to go and cast it into the sea, they say that would only be a temporary solution because the, the malice of this ring is so great that sooner or later it will, it will reveal itself again and it'll be another generation's problem. And so it's up to this generation to destroy the great evil of the ring, to wipe it out forever, and thereby to set Middle-earth free for all future ages from the tyranny of this uh, malicious power, and thereby to defeat Sauron and his evil forces. So the stakes could not be higher. But who will take the ring to Mordor? Well, the council is deliberating this question. Bilbo, of course, offers valiantly. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, well, sort of grouchily, actually. <laughs> he says, well, I'd, I'd hoped to live out my days here in peace and finish writing my book. But I can see now my tale is not yet ended. So I will go. <laughs> and uh, it's a wonderful scene. Now, of course, I don't have the text here. I'm walking. But it's a wonderful scene where it says, uh, I think Boromir, you know, smiles. He begins to laugh at Bilbo's ridiculous suggestion. But the rest of the council regarded him gravely and with great respect, because they know what Bilbo's capable of, and we'll find out later when we read The Hobbit. They know that there's more to this Hobbit than meets the eye. He's stout-hearted and brave. And uh, Gandalf, Gandalf tells him that it's not his journey. The ring now has passed to a new master. And so Bilbo is off the hook. Well, then the, the council continues to deliberate, and then suddenly Frodo speaks up, and he, he almost seems to speak um, now, I wouldn't say against his will, it's entirely from his free will, and yet, and yet it sort of arises from him unbidden. <laughs> and we've all probably had this experience, where he thinks, you know, I'd like nothing more than just to stay here in Rivendell forever. And yet he feels the, the tug of fate, if you want, upon him. Uh, of course, we'll call it providence. <laughs> where, he's, where he suddenly finds himself standing up in the midst of this company of great men and elves and dwarves and says, I will go. I will take the ring to Mordor, although I do not know the way. Uh, and that's really the turning point. This is the turning point of the whole story. When they arrived at Rivendell, Frodo thought that his adventure was over and that he'd gotten more than he bargained for, really. I mean, pursued by black riders, um, facing all manner of, of unknown terrors in the wilderness. And at last, they've made it to safety. He thinks, yeah, this has been my adventure. This is my counterpart to Bilbo's adventure. And uh, now, at last, I can, I can return home, and the ring is someone else's problem now. But at, this is the moment when he realizes, no, his story is just beginning. And he steps out with courage, um, not to say without fear, <laughs> uh, and not to say it's a kind of a brashness, you know, it, we can, we can see it, you know, as soon as he adds the writer, although I do not know the way, he's not putting himself forward because he's the best option. He's putting himself forward because he recognizes, he knows he's the only option. He is the ring bearer. He's the one who has the ring and he must be the one to go. And, uh, he's fully conscious of his own, his own weakness, his own inaptitude, you know, and yet he, he, he takes the step. He takes the step. So Elrond assigns him a fellowship, a company, to uh, go with him. And among them, of course, are all the familiar names. We have Legolas and Gimli. There's Aragorn and Boromir. Gandalf is going to go and Samwise. 
And then uh, also we get Merry and Pippin, <laughs> who go along with Frodo. And uh, they, they, you know, Elrond tries to, to keep them from going, but these stout-hearted friends of Frodo will not be left behind. And so they all set off together to make their way, um, how, wherever it may lead them, ultimately to Mordor. I'm going to stop saying it that way. <laughs> to make their way to Mordor and to Mount Doom. And uh, then for the next several chapters, we, you know, we're, just, we're still just in the beginnings of their journey. It's wild to consider. But they go through so much so early. They, uh, after many days or, or a few weeks, you know, they come at last to the uh, range of the Misty Mountains. They try to surmount Karathras, this... Uh, snow-capped peak so with a high mountain pass so they have to get to the other side of their mountain range but the mountain itself seems to be opposing them or there's some invisible force somehow the hand of Sauron is upon it and they are almost almost destroyed by a snowstorm that comes upon them in the night then there's there's an attack of wolves that come surround the company in the dead of night as well and they uh, drive the wolves off and find in the morning that they've all disappeared. There, there aren't even any bodies from the wolves they killed. They've all sort of evaporated with the morning dew. So it's clear there's something supernatural, there's something mysterious that's opposing them, that's resisting their progress. Finally, with no other option, they decide to enter into the mines of Moria, or Khazad-dum, in the language of the dwarves, this uh, ancient dwarvish city underneath the mountains. And uh, they, they enter into Moria, and it will take them at least a fortnight to go through this enormous dwarvish uh, fortress from the western door to the eastern gate. And it's pitch black, um, it's uninhabited, or so they think. But eventually they come to discover that orcs have taken up residence in Moria, and then it becomes a feverish flight to the eastern gate, pursued by orcs, and something worse than orcs, this creature called a Balrog, uh, sort of a fire demon from the depths of Middle-earth, who has arisen um, for unexplained reasons. And even the orcs seem to fear it, and yet they're somehow in league together. And so the company makes their escape, and uh, there comes this famous and heart-wrenching scene where uh, Gandalf stands alone on the bridge uh, between the company and the Balrog, crying out, You shall not pass! And we know how this scene ends. He sends the Balrog back into the depths with sort of the last gasp of his strength. But as it falls, the cords of its fiery whip uh, lash around Gandalf and pull him down too into the dark abyss. And he cries out, Fly, you fools! And then he is gone. And so uh, maybe you've read chapter six already by now. I haven't read it yet, but that's where we've left off. So the company has escaped from Moria, but they have lost their leader, their guide. They've lost Gandalf, and they are mourning over their loss. So, so much has happened <laughs> in the last two weeks. Here we are. We've crossed the Misty Mountains, and... Uh, and yet the journey still, in a real way, is only just beginning, and Gandalf is gone. Now, I wanted to read this week's chapters. Um, you know, I mentioned last week 
the, this idea of reading through a theme. And so th for this week, I wanted to read through the theme of memory, or perhaps nostalgia, um, with this wonderful Greek word, which, which means the pain of home, or the ache for home, you know, homesickness, nostalgia. And so it's interesting, you know, just to consider as um, we're experiencing Middle Earth through the eyes of the hobbits. The hobbits are, of course, used to living in the Shire. And the Shire is kind of perpetually youthful, it seems like. Do you know what I mean? The Shire is a place where it's, it's just a, a, a typical, you know, English countryside kind of sort of a timeless place, you know. And... Uh, yeah, certainly there's history there. You know, they talk about the time when the Brandywine River froze over and white wolves invaded the Shire. But that was outside of living memory. For the most part, things don't seem to really change there. Or if they do, they change at a, at a glacial pace. Life continues on the way everyone has always known it to, been, known, known it to be, to have been. But in the wider world, in the rest of Middle-earth, um, you know, we're discovering, along with the hobbits, we're seeing through their eyes, uh, walking in the midst of ruins. You know, we, see, we, we, we walk in the ruins of past grandeur and majesty. Just think of Moria. And we hear from Gandalf, uh, who saw it with his own eyes, I believe, in its past days of nobility and beauty. We hear also from uh, Elrond, the king of the elves, in the midst of the council. He's talking about events that happened thousands of years ago. And of course, he was there for them. And, and, and uh, <laughs> there's a moment at one point when Frodo uh, exclaims, you know, when Elrond is speaking, well, I thought that happened generations ago. And Elrond re replies gravely, so it did. But he was still there to see it. And think of Tom Bombadil also, this timeless one, the eldest of the old, who uh, to, to the hobbits one day, in his, his house, um, in, his, in his own country, is explaining to them the whole history of the land and the kingdoms that rose and fell and the great battles that were fought there. So we have these figures of, of memory, you know, Gandalf, Elrond, Tom Bombadil, uh, these good, really good and noble men and elves and whatever Tom Bombadil is, <laughs> who, uh, who, who have outlived generations and upon generations who have seen empires rise and fall. They've seen great deeds that have been done. They've seen the very landscape change, you know, under the action of um, great kings and warriors and armies who have shaped Middle-earth in their own image. You know, they, they saw the dwarves um, hammer out the great city of Khazadum. They saw the caverns uh, you know, carved out of the mountainside. They saw the days when, you know, elves and dwarves traded freely at the western door. And they have lived long enough to see the nobility and the majesty and the grandeur of past ages fall now into ruin and into disarray. They've lived long enough to see the great valley outside the eastern door now flooded with, with uh, noxious water and this mysterious, horrible creature, the watcher in the water, this thing that's come forth from the depths, now take up its dwelling place in what used to be a, a valley of peace and great beauty, a place of 
um, commerce, you know, and interchange between different races. Now it's a place of horrors. And all of Moria is a horrifying place. It's a, a terrible place. Think of the, the beats of the orcs' drums as the fellowship escapes. Doom, doom, doom. That's the, that's the song of Moria now. It's no longer a place lit by a thousand lamps and the, the cheer of dwarves <laughs> who are hard at work and uh, living their best, best lives under the mountain. It's now a place of doom, of terror. And, and in fact, all of Middle-earth has sort of fallen under a shadow. And uh, yeah, we, we can see that the, the, the entire land as we have seen it so far seems to be in this state of decay. It's all sort of slipping, it's fading away. We get the sense that we are living in an age, in a, a time and in a place that is fading. Something new is coming. Now, Saruman says as much to Gandalf, if you remember that conversation, as Gandalf recounts it to the, to the council of Elrond in Rivendell. He says that, uh, you know, when Saruman summoned him there to Isengard, he is speaking to Gandalf, and he, he issues him this invitation, almost like Darth Vader does to Luke Skywalker, you know, the classic invitation of villains everywhere. Join me, <laughs> and our power shall be greater than whatever, you know. <laughs> so Saruman issues this invitation to Gandalf, and he says to him, um, the age of men, or no, 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 the age of elves is over. There's no power left in the elves. They're fading out of this world. And the age of men is coming to a close, and now it is a new age. And, and it, it's, it's, this is our opportunity. This can be the age of wizards, you know. <laughs> this can be our opportunity to seize power for ourselves. We'll join up with Sauron, but we won't really be working for him. We'll be working for our own purposes. And when we see the opportunity, we'll overthrow him. And we can remake the world in our own image, you know. Of course, Gandalf sees right through that. And uh, he won't give Saruman an inch. But there is a glimmer of truth we can recognize in what Saruman says. Not that the victory of Sauron is inevitable, but that this is an era of, of deep, almost tectonic change. This is an era of... Um, yeah, this is the change of, of the ages. Something new is coming, something old is passing away and has almost disappeared. Like a candle flame that's just down to the wick. There's just a little ember left. So this is what we're living through in the time of Frodo and company. Now, it's interesting just to consider this. Um, what is the role of memory what is the what is or what is it to live in right relationship with the past when it seems that the ages are changing and when all that's left of the past is ruins and old legends you know tales uh, and songs and poems which are coming to us as if from across a great chasm <laughs> what is what is our right relationship with with our own past with our own history and i think we can see two counter examples um, in these early chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. So on the one hand, we have the characters I've already mentioned, like Gandalf, uh, Elrond, and Tom Bombadil. Now, these characters are really engaged, especially Gandalf. They're really engaged in the times, you know, in the, the present activity of the world. I mean, Elrond and Tom Bombadil, not so much. They're more concerned with their own domain, with their own land, preserving 
preserving their own holdings in peace, you know, and rightly so, because uh, Tom Bombadil is the master of his country. Elrond is the master of the elves of Rivendell. So that's their job. <laughs> so they're sort of inward looking. But Gandalf is out on the roads and, you know, he's fighting against the dark power. And uh, he's engaged in something which has import for all of Middle-earth. But these three characters all, these are repositories and fonts of memory. They're, they are almost, yeah, living libraries. <laughs> They're living memory of all that has gone before in Middle-earth. And because they are so deeply rooted in history and formed by their knowledge of what has already come to pass in previous ages, they're able to engage with the terrors and the dangers of this age in a different way than for example, the hobbits, <laughs> who have little to no concept of history, or the great, the great narrative which spans across the generations that they are now swept up in. And so, because, of, uh, because they have these leaders, because they have these guides who have, who have a sense of the drama, right? Who have a, and who have a sense of the stakes, they are able to fight the, this battle. They're able to undertake this desperate journey. Um, with at least a glimmer of hope, right? <laughs> it's not simply a Quixotic kind of, you know, sally forth into the world, righting all wrongs, uh, but ultimately doomed from the outset to failure because they have really no sense of what they're fighting or even what they're fighting for. But because of the leadership of Gandalf and Elrond um, and the protection of Tom Bombadil, you know, they're able to go out into the world with some hope, perhaps, just a glimmer, but some, some hope of success. On the other hand, I want to point again to the mysterious and the terrifying character of the Barrow White. The Barrow White. Uh, now, this might come as a surprise, but <laughs> and, and I don't have the textual reference here, but if anyone wants to dig it up, that would be most welcome. Um, when Frodo is first captured by the Barrow White, uh, I believe, doesn't he have a kind of a, a flashback to a memory that's not his own? He, he feels as if all of a sudden he is in a, a battlefield surrounded by mist and there's great armies clashing around him. And then once, um, once Merry and Pippin are rescued, I forget which of them it is, but Tom Bombadil rescues them and either Merry or Pippin wakes up. And at first he is sort of babbling wildly. He says, what happened? Oh, I remember, um, you know, the, the, the forces of Angmar uh, ambushed us upon the field and they cut us down, you know. So he, he has these memories of a, a battle from the, out of the distant past that he's confused for a moment. He feels as if he was a part of it. So what does that tell us? Well, the Barrow Whites, the Barrow Whites are these sort of restless, unquiet spirits of the dead who were slain in this battle long ago in the dawn of Middle-earth, <laughs> way back in history. One day we'll probably read about it in the Silmarillion, right? And uh, now, even today, in the midst of the Fourth Age, I think, or is it the Third Age, whatever age of the world <laughs> Frodo and company are living through, that battle is long over, and yet the Barrow Whites are locked in a kind of eternal prison of the mind, where they are continually living through this ancient battle against a, a, a foe that has long disappeared. You know, their enemy now has faded away and the, 
you know, the, the battlefield, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's overgrown again with grass and flowers. The only sign that's left are the standing stones upon the hills, marking the places where the uh, kings of old were buried, and which have now become the Barrowites. But for the Barrowites, they are still living through this ancient battle. And as they capture their victims, we see the effect it has on the hobbits. They're sort of brought into this prison of the mind. They're brought into this prison of memory. So these are two different ways of engaging with the past, of living in relationship with the past. The Barrow Whites exemplify for us, and I, and I, I will hesitate again here to make my normal reminder that Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, <laughs> and yet we can see in these characters, I think, real uh, examples of different ways of living and ways of acting, which we can draw from. So it's not a, a morality tale, and yet we can still draw these profitable examples. So the Barrow Whites show for us um, a way of living in which you are held captive by the past. And so many people in, you know, their, in their own ways, in different ways, are held captive by the past, aren't they? By some, some wrong that was done to them long ago, um, something that they suffered in the past. And this is not to, um, you know, not, not to shame or to judge those who feel bound by things that happened in the past, by real trauma that they suffered. But just to point to this experience, so many people are imprisoned in a kind of prison of the mind by something that happened long ago. And maybe the whole world has moved on. Maybe even the person who wronged you, they might, have, they might no longer be living or they might have completely moved on with their life and they've forgotten about this instance. But for the person who's still bound by a memory and who is held prison in their own mind, in their own heart, well, they are unable to move on. They're like the hobbits in the barrow, you know, kept cold upon stone under the earth sort of frozen in a, a place out of time, frozen. And as the world goes on, they're not able to engage with it or not to engage fully, depending on how, how uh, deeply they're imprisoned, right? On the other hand, we have Elrond, Gandalf, Tom Bombadil, and I'm sure we could find more examples too. And we, we see in them, there is a kind of gravity about them. There's even a kind of sadness about them at times because they have lived through so much, and yet they are not bound. They are not imprisoned. They are free. And because of what they have experienced, even what they've suffered and what they've learned along the way, uh, because of the wisdom that they have gained, they're able to guide and to influence and to affect events in the world more powerfully than those who have suffered little. And so really the question of how do we engage with the past? How do we live in right relationship with the past? Even points us to a deeper question, which is, um, how does the how do the past uh, events that we have suffered and that we have lived through shape and affect us? How can we profitably live in the present moment as ones who have lived through all that we've lived through and suffered what we have suffered? Um, and so these are two different ways that are available to us. Uh, the way of Gandalf, Elrond, and Bombadil, or the way of the Barrowites. To be bound by the past, or to be, in a sense, formed and motivated by the past in how we engage with the present. 
And I would just add uh, a little, um, a little fervorino, <laughs> as they say in Italian, un fervorino, a little, um, well, I don't know, a little word <laughs> here at the end, uh, which is that for all those who are bound, you know, Christ came for those who are bound. He's, he says at the beginning of his ministry in the synagogue in, uh, in Galilee, in, 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 in uh, where was it, in Nazareth, I think? Um, at any rate, in the synagogue <laughs> there where he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, he says, um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am anointed to come and set captives free, to set free those bound in prison, right? Now, what's the, the great secret of our Christian tradition which enables us to be set free? Well, it's forgiveness. This is the way that Christ preaches to us, you know. We pray it every day in the Our Father, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. So forgiveness is what sets us free from the barrows in which we're bound. And so uh, to approach the past with an attitude of forgiveness, I think that is a that is a practice that leads to freedom and that leads to wisdom because it enables us now to engage in the present. We don't forget what's gone before and we don't sort of try to reshape it or just, um, yeah, rearrange uh, events. Do <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not simply ignoring the past, okay? And trying to arrange things now for our own benefit. Well, that'll never work because the past continues to influence us. The past leaves its mark upon us and upon the land. When they pass through the land near the foot of the Misty Mountains, Gandalf comments that uh, it, it will take it will take a great deal of hardship for any land upon which elves have lived to forget the presence of the elves once upon a time, right? And that land they're passing through, even though it's now wild and desolate, it's still sort of, it has a wholesome feeling about it. It makes them feel safe because the land itself bears the imprint of the presence of the elves once upon a time. And so, yeah, the, our, our past experiences leave their mark upon us as they do upon the land and upon the whole world. So the way forward is never just to ignore what's happened, to pretend it didn't happen, to forget. You know, people say forgive and forget. Well, for, don't forget. Don't forget. Forgive. <laughs> Forgiveness doesn't imply forgetting. Forgiveness, rather, is a way to recognize the reality of what happened in the past in all of its horror sometimes, in all of its darkness, in all of its in all of its um, trauma, you know, its traumatic power, and, and not to deny that, um, really to engage with it in the truth, but to take a step towards healing, towards reconciliation. And, uh, you know, there's the common saying that forgiveness is really for our own benefit. It's not for the benefit of the one we forgive, <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it, it bears dividends in our own heart because it sets us free from the prison in which we're bound. Um, let's see, was there something else I was going to say on this topic? We've talked about memory, we've talked about the past, we've talked about the Barrow Whites. Hmm. Well, let me go and check my notebook real quick where I wrote down some scribbled thoughts about this episode and what I wanted to say in it. Doop -de -doo. 
So just one last thought about memory and uh, to approach the past, to engage with the past, but with an attitude of forgiveness. Um, there seem to be spirits that are active in our culture right now that are iconoclastic spirits. Do you know what I mean? We saw this last summer with this sudden mania to destroy statues um, and to sort of blot out the memory of any figure out of the past who appears to us to have been flawed, <laughs> to have had some kind of, uh, in their life, some sort of you know, cooperation with evil or some sort of some sort of um, flaw in their character, which we will, which we, we as a society now w- would condemn, right? But it, we want to make the leap from condemning some aspect of their behavior or some aspect of our own history, and go from there to destroying whole monuments, to wiping people out of the history books, you know, to removing even books from the curriculum of schools, and. Uh, sort of refusing to engage with our past in that way. Um, It's sort of like the ancient Roman practice of damnatio memoriae, the damnation of memory, by which a new emperor who came to power would command that the names of the previous emperor be scratched out and removed from all the plaques and monuments of Rome, and his name be blotted out of the history books, you know, the ultimate... uh, the ultimate refusal <laughs> to engage with history, right? To engage with the past. Well, we see a similar spirit in our own cultural moment. And so I just want to speak into that. Um, yeah, well, I think a lesson we can learn from these early chapters of The Lord of the Rings is that whatever else may be true of our current age and our current world, we live in a world which is not of our own making, you know? We have the opportunity to engage with it, to leave our mark upon it, to help to shape it for the better, to combat the forces of darkness. Um, And yet, we live in a world which which already bears the mark, the imprint of generations that have gone before. And so the way to live in the world, I think, the way to live in right relationship with the world and with all that has gone before us and all those who live before us is to recognize uh, to recognize what has gone before, to honor what is worthy of honor, and to speak of what is worthy of dishonor, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not, not as if it's something uh, good, you know, we want to we recognize real injustice and speak about it, uh, but also not to, not to blot it out, not to refuse to engage with it. That is not the way forward. Uh, and so we want to take as our example always Gandalf, Elrond, Bombadil, and these other, yeah, living examples of right relationship with the past and engaging well with the battles of the present. So that's what I had to say about this week's chapters of Lord of the Rings. Of course, there's so much more that could be said. And uh, these chapters are, uh, this, this whole uh, cycle of the Lord of the Rings is so rich. You know, there's a a thousand different themes through which we could read any one of these chapters or any week's worth of chapters. So uh, anyway, that's what I've got for you today. And uh, looking forward to speaking more next week. If you have a suggestion for next week's theme, as always, feel free to send it on to me, as well as any comments or questions you might have as we continue on this journey together, step by step, drawing nearer to Mordor. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is 
charged with the grandeur of God. Well, in these last few minutes of the podcast, I think what I would like to speak about is the theological role, the role of trust, (laughs) the role of trust in the spiritual life. Uh, Now, this is a a rich and polyvalent concept, and it has, uh, well, it has important theological implications, right? So as you think about trust, the first thing to think about is trust is intimately related to faith. Um, What I remember learning in uh, a class I had on virtues and vices, uh, sort of the Thomistic, the, the, um, the way that St. Thomas treats virtues and vices, is that faith basically is made... Well, so first of all, <laughs> there's so much to say. <laughs> How to even begin? So for one thing, we can think about faith. We can distinguish acquired faith from infused faith. It's this way with all the virtues. And I, I believe I talked about this last week. You know, there's virtue which you acquire simply by doing it. And that's like building up a muscle, you know. We have within ourselves these, the potential for all the virtues. Um, just like in our bodies, we have, simply by virtue of being humans and having, you know, a muscular skeletal system, we have the capacity to, uh, you know, lift heavy things. <laughs> and so by doing it, then you build up your, you actualize your potential. You build up uh, what you have there in potentia becomes in actu. It becomes in act, enacted by the act of lifting weights. You can then lift more weights, right? So it's kind of like that with virtue in St. Thomas's system. So how do you acquire, on the one hand, through our own efforts, the virtue of faith? Well, you do what faith requires, which is you believe. The act of faith is to believe. On the other hand, though, you have supernatural faith. That comes as a sheer gratuitous gift from God. And it comes principally through the reception of the sacraments. Although God is not bound by the sacraments, you know, he binds himself to them. It's like his promise to us. If you receive this sacrament, you'll receive these graces, you know. But he's not bound by them. He can also give graces freely wherever he wishes outside the sacramental system as well. But we know, for example, when when a, a person is baptized, well, one of the fruits of baptism is you receive the infused virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And those will continue to increase over time as God gives you a greater gift. So um, for the unbaptized, you know, (laughs) if you want the gift of faith, well, get baptized, (laughs) right? And for us who are baptized, well, how do you increase your faith? Well, on the one hand, you make acts of faith, you believe. On the other hand, you ask the Lord to increase the gift of faith in you. Because the only way to increase the infused virtues is by asking God to give us more faith, give us more hope, give us greater charity. All right, so then another aspect to consider of faith, whether it's infused or uh, acquired, is what is the act of faith? Basically, St. Thomas says there's two acts. There's uh, credo quid and credo quo, which means I believe that and I believe him, basically. So what's the the distinction? Well, on the one hand, uh, one act of faith uh, credo quod is, I believe this particular article, I believe this particular declaration is true, right? I believe this, yeah, article of faith. <laughs> so you think about the creed. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, right? 
I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the communion of the saints. To recite the creed is to make many acts of faith where you're saying, I believe this, 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 and this. On the other hand, and in fact, um, you could in some sense say on a deeper level than that, or at any rate, symbiotic with that, there's the act of faith, which is credo quo. And this is, I say it might go to a deeper level because this is the reason why you believe certain definite articles of faith. And ultimately, you believe something that someone says because you trust that person, right? And this is this kind of gets to the heart of faith. But what we believe by faith, the specific things we believe by faith, we believe them with a kind of a moral certainty, um, which is ordinarily reserved for fact that, you know, we observe with our own eyes or something like that, or that is empirically testable, you know, or borne out by our own experience. So we believe things by faith with that same kind of certainty. But faith, the the, the things that we believe by faith, you know, St. Paul says, faith is the substance of things not seen, uh, the expectation of things which are which are unknown. <laughs> and so we don't have empirical certainty. We don't have, we don't have the knowledge of experience necessarily, um, which leads us to faith. Rather, our faith is founded upon trust in the person who reveals the truth to us. And based upon our relationship with that person, we say this person is trustworthy. And therefore, I believe this that he says because I believe in him. That's credo quo. And so uh, what I would propose, and along with, uh, I propose it not just as my own idea, but on the authority of Pope Benedict and others um, who make this case, that behind every act of credo quid is the deeper credo quo, namely in Jesus. So I believe in the resurrection of the dead because I believe in Jesus. Right? I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, because I believe in Jesus. I believe in him as someone who is trustworthy and true. I, I believe that he is God and man. He is the revelation of God, the incarnation of God, who uh, can neither deceive nor be deceived. And that what he says to us is worthy of belief and is uh, the, the very word of salvation. Right, The very word which sets man free. So, this is just by way of an introduction to the concept of trust and how trust plays into, um, on the one hand, our theological understanding, on the other hand, our spiritual life, and indeed our whole life. I read recently an article in First Things Magazine, which is a great magazine. Um, and I'm sorry I don't have the quote here in front of me right now, but I'll give you it as best I can. There was an editorial by Rusty Reno, who's the editor-in-chief of First Things, and he quoted a friend of his who said something like, "Um, Lack of trust is the acid which is slowly dissolving everything in our society in modern day. So this idea of our, our sort of common, our generational lack of trust as a kind of acid which is dissolving eating away at our institutions, at our relationships, at our families, at our very social structure. Related to that, I also recently read uh, some of a report which is put out by, I think it's called the Springtide Institute, and it's the 2020 report on young people and religion, or something like that. And it's looking at Generation Z, the Zoomers, (laughs) so-called, the generation below my own, who who are school age now, they're coming up. And um, this is the largest study ever done on Gen Z so far. It had some 10,000 participants who were asked 
um, various very good questions about their faith experience, their relationship with religion, and different things. One of them was about the level of trust they have in different institutions, not just churches, but for example, banks, um, healthcare, the government, the presidency, um, you know, uh, the media, a variety of different things, right? And it was so striking to see they averaged all the responses. Not a single institution got higher than about a five. It was a scale of one to 10. Now the church was uh, not the lowest, also not the highest. We're kind of in the middle, right? <laughs> but um, this is not a problem that's just affecting organized religion, quote unquote. It's affecting all social institutions. There is, uh, and it, it, it is, it's also present in other generations, but it's most striking among Gen Z. Um, and you think, if you think about trust on a one to 10 scale and you think, uh, you know, a level of trust is about a five, well, that's not really trust at all. <laughs> I mean, for trust to really be trust, you know, you gotta, you gotta be up around like at least seven, eight, nine, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not, you're not going to say to someone, well, I half trust you because then you don't really trust them at all. You're always looking at them out of the corner of your eye to make sure they're not robbing you behind your back, you know? And this is the level that most people um, in Gen Z, it's probably also true to, of my generation, although maybe to a, a little bit of a less extent, I'm not sure, but certainly of, of Generation Z, this is their sort of fundamental attitude and posture of engagement with institutions throughout the culture. Um, a, 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 at best, a half trust, um, which is no trust at all. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, no, so how do we begin to trust again? How do we grow in trust? Well, the difficult thing is you can't force yourself to trust somebody or something. Even if you see it as a good to trust somebody, um, you can't force that. What has to happen is you have to see that the other person or the institution is trustworthy. And that, that happens... Um, that, that's a shift that happens on the level of the heart. You know, I, at least you might disagree with me, but I think you can't will that. And I've met enough people already in my, in my life who have said something to the effect of, yeah, I would love to believe in God. I think my life would be better if I believed in God, but I just can't make myself believe that I think they're in the same boat that perhaps many in Generation Z are, <laughs> of thinking, um, e even there is one quote from a, a Gen Z uh, young woman, I think, in the study, who said, sometimes I think my life would be happier and more meaningful if I had more religion, you know? But um, I just can't seem to make myself believe. I can't seem to make myself pursue it. My religion is basically being good and trying to treat people as I want to be treated. Well, that's laudable. Yet she recognizes there's something she's missing, but she can't force herself to take that step, to take that first act of faith. That, if you want that credo quid, you know, to make an act of belief in a particular religion, because there's no credo quo, there's no underlying reason to believe in someone trustworthy which convicts the heart. And so, what is needed? What is needed? if we're going to begin to trust, to begin to believe. Well, what's needed really is an encounter. And I would say, on the level of our spiritual life, what's needed is an encounter with Jesus. It's, it's an encounter with the risen Lord. You know, the apostles had this uh, after the crucifixion, when the Lord rose from the dead, he appeared in their midst, 
they, their faith was shaken, right? Think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were talking amongst themselves. They were melancholy. They feel hopeless. They're thinking, we really thought this Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the one who's going to deliver Israel. But now he's been crucified and he's been in the tomb three days. And, you know, all our hopes for the future are dashed. And what, what's left for us now? And then Jesus comes and stands in their midst. <laughs> and he awakens, their hearts burn within them. He awakens their faith. He stirs it up into a fire, right? Or think about when he appears in the upper room. He says, he says Shalom, peace be with you. And uh, the Lord's peace burns in their heart like a fire. And it transforms these men who were wavering and cowardly into true apostles who go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel and who give up their lives as martyrs because they have seen the risen Lord. See, there's a, even as I say, see, <laughs> there is a need to see. We, we don't see um, the articles of faith we believe, you know. We don't see the empirical evidence for them. But we do see the one in whom we believe. And we must see him if we are to believe what he teaches and what his church teaches. Now, an interesting way of approaching this from a secular perspective is in this Spring Tide Institute uh, study that I was reading. Because they talk about the need for relational authority if we're going to uh, make headway with Gen Z, you know. And this is, by the way, this is a, this is a secular... Um, institution. They are sociologists studying the intersection of religion and public life. They're non-denominational. They're not specifically Christian. Um, They're simply studying this sphere. And so they kind of came up with this idea of relational authority um, where they're saying, you know, to reach Gen Z, I mean, basically there's two ways in the past of doing they wouldn't use this term, but like youth ministry or like reaching young people, you know, to engage with their lives. And one uh, relies on authority. And so it's basically, basically, um, you know, you, you say like, I, I have the, I have the answers that I can help you live your life well. And you sort of rely on a title or a degree or a role in an organization like, oh, I'm the youth minister. I'm the pastor. Um, I have a doctorate in this. Here, let me teach you. The other way is basically a relational way where you're saying, you think of like the classic youth pastor who's out playing basketball with the kids, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's basically saying, I want to be there where the kids are and I want to be involved in their life to do what they do, to be with them. So then it, when they're going through something, um, when, they have some, when they're ready to talk, when they have something they want to bring up, then I'm there on the scene and they know I'm available, basically. What the Springtown Institute proposes is relational authority. And so they're saying that there's a need for both. Uh, the, the young people are looking. They're really looking for mentors. There's a need for adult mentors. In fact, there's a very striking statistic where they say, um, I believe, now I might have the numbers wrong, but I, I think this is basically it. Something like 20 or 25% of the young people they studied reported having one or fewer trustworthy adults in their lives who they really feel they can talk to. And so of that subsection who have one or fewer, 50% reported having a no sense of meaning or purpose in life, right? So striking. And then as the numbers go up, you know, as you get to people who have two, three, four, five or more adult mentors, the rates of meaninglessness and purposelessness drop dramatically. And when they have five or more, 
those who say they sense their life has no meaning or purpose, it's almost like 1% or less, you know, like, and so you could just see there's a clear, unmistakable correlation there. So um, they propose young people, they really need and they desire mentors who have wisdom and experience, right? Like Frodo needs Gandalf, <laughs> you know, so there's this need for mentorship and for trustworthy adults. And yet, what they need is for adults who will not just engage with them on the level of um, teacher and student, for example, or pastor and parishioner necessarily, um, although that's not necessarily a kind of a one-way relationship, right? <laughs> but um, I think the way that the Springtide Institute presents it, you know, they don't want, they don't just need adults who will engage with them as an authority figure who comes to teach them, but they, they need adults who will also engage with them relationally yet not simply by sort of being their buddies, being their friends. They already have friends. What they're really in need of are mentors. And so they propose this kind of, uh, this kind of five-dimensional model of relational authority. And it includes experience or expertise uh, or authority as one of the five. And then I forget what else. One of them is transparency, um, yeah, and I, I, of course I don't have it here, so I don't remember the other five. But I just wanted to bring that up because it's been on my mind recently, thinking about relational authority and what exactly that means. Relational authority is the kind of authority that Jesus had with his disciples, <laughs> right? I mean, he lives in their midst. He gathers this company around himself, right? Like the company that gathers with Frodo to pursue the ring. Like he gathers the fellowship of the 12 disciples. He lives with them. Like he's in their midst. And uh, yeah, there is a friendship that develops between them, but it's not sort of just a friendship of equals. Jesus is the leader. He is the one who... Uh, comes to them with, you know, they say, what, what new teaching is this? Teaching with authority. He comes with a unique kind of authority because he comes from God. And so they gather around him because they're, they desire to learn from him and to follow his example. And they're convicted by the way he lives. They see the way he prays, you know, Lord, teach us how to pray like you pray. And so, yeah, there, there's, that, there's that relationality. There's real fellowship amongst them. But there's also the authority the expertise. He's the mentor. He's the leader. He's the one who's initiating them into true discipleship. So just something I've been thinking about. So what's the relationship of trust? Well, uh, in order to, you know, to, to, to initiate people into trust, <laughs> perhaps what we need is a, a, a more relational authority-based mode of uh, pastoral leadership, right? And I, I see this in action already in some of the best parishes, you know, and some of the best ministries in the church. Um, pastors who are relationally engaged and yet are not abdicating the reality that they've been placed, they've been sent there, they have a mission there from the archbishop and from God. <laughs> and they've been equipped for it, you know. And so they have that real authority, expertise, leadership, um, and yet there's also, with that, with that, there's transparency, there's humility, and there's uh, a, a collaborative mentality. There's a sense of being part of a team. And so, yeah, this is just um, something I've been wrestling with and thinking about. But, yeah, there's, there's the importance of trust for us in our own spiritual lives. It's so essential to build trust in the Lord. Pretty much all of our spiritual problems and our deep-rooted sins and areas of struggle are because we don't really trust the Lord, right? 
At least I find that to be true. So it's so essential for us. And what's essential for us individually is also so essential for the church. We must become a people of trust, you know, not a blind and an uncritical trust. Um, I think in some cases in the past, that might have been the case, you know, and people got burned um, by placing too much uncritical trust in institutions and leaders and then later discovering, wow, there was actually some horrible criminal activity going on. You know, there was abuse. There was, there was uh, the, trust, the trust of the people was abused. So we can't go back to that and we don't want to go back to that. And yet, if we become people who are congenitally mistrusting and always looking out of one eye, <laughs> you know, like this, this 55 out of 10 or less <laughs> level of trust, well, that won't sustain us. We cannot be the church unless we are a people of radical trust. And to become, again, a people of that kind of trust as the disciples were and the, and the saints have always been, then I think we need to move in this direction of relational authority. So something just to think about. I'd welcome, as always, your comments and your thoughts. But for now, I must wrap this up. It's just after 1.30. I got to get back to the rectory, which will take me about 20 minutes or so. Got to put on my cassock, get a bite to eat. I've had almost nothing all day. Not for exodus reasons, just because I've been out and about and I haven't had anything to eat. And so I'm starting to feel the gnawing of hunger. So I got to get home and eat something and then head over to the church uh, by 2.30 to, as always, help with confessions this afternoon. And then we have the uh, Latin Vigil Mass tonight. And, you know, it's just always a busy life. <laughs> it's always an active life. I should say. So, my friends, it's been great talking to you today. The sun has gone away, but it hasn't started raining yet, but it is a bit chilly. So I'm looking forward to getting into the car and going home. <laughs> uh, until next time, may God bless you, especially as you enter into this uh, first official week of Lent. May he uh, lead you into the ways of the desert. May you make straight in the wilderness a pathway for our God to come more deeply into your hearts, to penetrate and pierce you with his beauty, to convict you of his goodness, to fill you with the light of his truth, and thereby to inspire in you a deeper trust and a love and a hope in the good designs that he has for you. May Almighty God bless you, protect you from all evil, and bring you to everlasting life. Amen.